This podcast is brought to you by Airbyte, the product and growth studio available at startup prices. If you're struggling with designing, building, or growing your vision, Airbyte may be the perfect partner. Learn more at airbyte.co.uk. Airbyte, building digital products with growth in mind. The thing to acknowledge up front is that, you know, effectively our, our sales tapered off very, very quickly. So we went from being a company doing almost a million pound months to doing, I think it was something like 9,000 in, in April. So things, <laughs> things got hit pretty hard, pretty fast. From Airbyte, this is Growth in Mind, a podcast about the stories behind the high growth startups and small businesses that are starting to make waves in the world. I, James Farnfield, speak with the founders and entrepreneurs about their personal and professional lives and how they intertwine to lead to building successful businesses today and how growth has been a part of who they are or who they have become. On today's episode, we have Hugo Campbell of Feastip. Feastit is the UK's largest event booking platform. Instead of going to six, seven, eight suppliers of everything ranging from food trucks to marquee hires for your wedding, party or event, all you need is Feastit. How to find a co-founder. A question that a high percent of entrepreneurs will ask themselves, if not every single one of them. This is unless you are Hugo and Digby of Feastit. Best friends from childhood, roommates, and then business owners. Feastit has raised over four million pounds since inception in 2016 and has been utilizing tech to transform the events industry over the past five years. And then COVID-19 came along and changed Hugo's and Feastit's life overnight. However, Hugo's story really does start from the beginning. Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Oxford, so I uh, lived uh, in Oxford all of my life, um, kind of born in the John Radcliffe Hospital, which, ask anyone who's who's grown up in Oxford, they've probably been born there too, uh, and yeah, went to uh, went to school in and around there before I went to uh, Warwick University, which was my sort of first experience of moving out of uh, of Oxford, uh, and then I actually moved to LA for moved to is a very loose term for three months uh, directly after uni, and uh, and uh, then it's been back in well well in London since then, where I am now over in uh, in Myland. Awesome. So, growing up, what did uh, your parents do? What were you around with as a child? Uh, so my dad was in advertising. He worked uh, up in London, and I didn't know too much about it, to be perfectly honest. It was an agency called Clayton Healy, and they uh, did lots of advertising campaigns for the likes of sort of PlayStation, which was great because it meant that I got lots of PS2 games before they came out, and sort of Lynx and uh, brands like that. I think they're, they're probably most well-known for the sort of funny-ish, well, depends very much depends on what your interpretation of funny is, uh, the kind of 90s Lynx adverts uh, where, you know, people would put on Lynx deodorant and then thousands of girls would immediately come flocking to them, that kind of uh, that kind of thing. Um, and then my mum uh, was, was mainly stay-at-home mum, but uh, did a bit of interior design as well. Awesome. So both both quite creative. Uh, what, what, did you, what did you like at school? What were you good at? Well, I did... English at university 
and that was always what I was most interested in when I was at school. So uh, uh, really, really enjoyed um, creative writing, reading, and then subjects around that. Like uh, always, always enjoyed history. Did uh, politics when that came along at A level, and really enjoyed that too. Uh, and then ultimately, yeah, went to uni to to study. English and uh, so it was always sort of the writing side of things that appealed to me and that ultimately led to sort of my first step in my career which was to become a journalist and I worked at the independent for a few years before starting Feast It. Yeah awesome so going to university can be quite challenging for a number of people did you find kind of moving away from home uh, tough or was it nice and easy for you? Uh, I'd say I was fairly ready for it when it, when, when it came along. I was um, uh, Oxford is not the biggest city in the world, and while it's obviously it's not small and it's really really lovely, but um, but I was ready to, to move out of it. Moving to Warwick and Leamington Spa isn't necessarily the biggest uh, biggest change from that. No sort of bright lights as such, but uh, it was nice to sort of have a bit of a change of location and. I was really, really looking forward to the sort of university experience. And uh, yeah, it was great. I was re- yeah, really, really looking forward to it when it came around. And then you, took, you spent three years at Warwick. How was, how was it? Did you enjoy yourself or did you find the sort of step up in education level challenging or, or was, it, was it something which kind of just seemed natural to you? I loved it there. I had a really, really nice time. I had lots of friends who went to much bigger cities you know, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, places like that. And going along and visiting was a really, really, had a very, very good time. Um, but it was a very different experience uh, at Warwick. It's much more sort of pubs rather than clubs, etc. cetera. And, um, and you, we all lived in Leamington Spa, which is quite a lovely small town. But it was a really, really nice experience. Warwick's mainly known as being a businessy uh, university. The business school is quite prominent. And math science is very big there too but the uh the kind of art side of things was great great too the, the english course was brilliant and it kind of formed a bit of a sort of pocketed community within the university i thought there was a bit of a sort of arts and science divide uh in the end but um but yeah it was lovely had a had a really really nice time and the english course there was was really interesting so then moving on from university um i you, you graduated in 2014 you then, as you say, you landed a job at the Telegraph, studying English, passion for English by the sounds of it at school. Was that dream job stage? Well, the job was, so I'd done a bit of work experience at the Telegraph before. The job was actually at the Independent, uh, where I where I started. Uh, yeah, it was actually. It was really what I wanted to, wanted to do, and it was sort of what I'd been hoping to do for years and years before that so it was actually coming into a bit of a dream job straight out of uni which was brilliant and obviously moving to London at the same time was great it was yeah very very exciting time and it was a very interesting job that kind of opened up um well made me sort of appreciate what the world of work is actually like and it was quite a quite a quick transition into that into something that was quite intense Mm, yeah absolutely Uh, moving down to London the the change of going from education to kind of the nine to five, or I'm sure in, in your case as, as a news reporter, hours would have been all over the place. How did, how did you find that? Was there a level of kind of anxiety about making that change? Uh, there was a, not too much anxiety as such, but uh, I, uh, I don't want to quite say that 
uh, didn't know what I got myself in for in, in, in taking a job like that because, you know, at, at that point, obviously I would have taken anything that I, anything that came along job-wise because when it comes to your first job, obviously it's not easy to, to get in. Um, but it was lots of, uh, you know, late nights followed by immediate early mornings, weekend work. So you often find yourself with a shift working till eight, nine, one evening, and then back in at seven the next morning, lots of, yeah, Friday, Saturday nights, Sundays, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, often quite, quite odd hours. Mm, yeah, quite. Kind of getting that job, as you said, I think you kind of did label it as a dream job to some extent. Finding that job must have been pretty tough, even with a good English degree from a good university that Warwick is. Um, how, how did you go about even kind of getting on their radar? Well, I'll be honest, I I don't want to go too much detail about how the independent employs people, but it seemed to be that at that point, they were, if you found yourself writing a few articles, they would basically employ you. And that seemed to be what they would do for 20, 20 run year olds. So pretty much everyone there who, who, who had a role would sort of find themselves writing freelance for a little bit. And then suddenly you'd find yourself kind of slowly becoming full-time and it kind of happened it was a kind of writing a few articles for them just you know putting stuff forward pitching etc and then suddenly you find yourself there full-time and it was almost sort of wedging your foot in the door and making sure that they didn't forget about you and then suddenly you had a job so it was odd definitely not a traditional experience of, of getting a, a job it was a very interesting time to be there because it was when the paper went under essentially so, you know, I was there when 200, 300 people got told they may, they were being made redundant at once, uh, which is quite an, an intense moment, kind of standing on this balcony of, of Northcliffe House, which is the building, a huge building uh, on High Street Ken, where the Daily Mail are based as well. It's just a sort of, uh, yeah, huge kind of building with a massive amount of indoor space. It's really cool. Um, and obviously, yeah, 200, 300 people made redundant at once. And um, that just meant that, you know, the 20, 30 of us, this sort of smaller team who were the online team, basically took everything over that came with that. And they made uh, the Daily Edition, which was an app, which was the um, essentially to replace the paper. So it's an iPad um, app and you know the, they they kept on lots of their best writers and they they produced this as if it was a paper every single day so it was ordered you know with the with your news world news uh lifestyle section sport at the end that kind of thing and it was it was kind of going through that process of making a paper every single night which was which was yeah really intense but very very fun and i'll be honest i i think i found myself in that position rather by um a lot of it was sort of just looking for for someone who could do things at the time. So a lot of it was circumstance and putting your hand up at the right time. And it seemed like a really interesting opportunity. So I, I went for it at the time then, yeah. So so you'd worked at The Independent for a couple of years and then Feast It. Feast It came about, you have a co-founder. How on earth did you make that jump? Uh, so, well, uh, probably starts with my, my, my co-founder who I've known for, for, well, decades at this point. We've known each other since we were six or seven. We used to live next door when we were very, very young. And, um, we've always lived together, well, since we've been in London. 
and um, you know, kind of talked, bounced ideas about businesses around quite a bit, and always thought about you know whether there was anything that we could do. And we both got to a point within our respective roles. So he was working for a company called um, Fest Ticket, who are uh, a booking a, a, a ticketing company for for music festivals. Though they're doing very very well these days and. I got to a point in, in my role where we both thought that what well, we were looking to move upwards and it wasn't necessarily happening at the rate at which we wanted it to. And so we decided that it, we'd, we'd give it a go and, and spend a bit of time trying to start a company ourselves. And with Feast It, the aim was we, um, we realised that we kind of had a chat and, and thought that we would probably leave our respective roles uh, anyway over the next few months. So we decided that if that was going to be the case, we may as well give it a shot for three months to try and start our own company. And um, we talked about the idea for for Feast It for quite some time and we decided that we would uh, give it a go. Uh, I think lots of people will always say, oh my God, it must have been it's such a risky decision. For us at the time, if we're being perfectly honest, both of us were, were 24. We kind of had a, a decision that if things went completely tits up after three months, we would uh, we would kind of go back to our careers and it would be sort of minimal damage to it. At least we'd given it a go. So that was sort of the footing on which we we kicked things off. And um, yeah, and, and things have, that was about four years ago now. And um, yeah, things have really kind of kicked on from there. And, and that's that's where it all started. Mm, amazing. So uh, Digby is, is your co-founder and you've known him for since you were a child. Was that just something where you were growing up as teenagers, you know, walking around, kicking a ball around and you were just like kind of you're always both on the same page that one day you might run a business together? Or did that just sort of manifest when you kind of were in your 20s? I don't think we were necessarily thinking about that too much back then. We were mainly arguing about whether GameCubes or PS2s were better uh and um who was the best warhammer army it wasn't really it, it, i wouldn't say it was something that was necessarily destined or anything like that or that we were two people who would definitely go out and, and do that from the start but that when we kind of lived together from a from a, a at an older age we just just became something that we talked about quite a bit and um and then we started talking about the idea of feast it quite a lot uh and it just seemed to make sense and it seemed a bit bit crazy that it didn't exist anywhere else and the more we looked into it and researched it became apparent that there was a niche for it and it didn't really exist it didn't really exist internationally and so uh it seemed like a like a like a good risk to take at the time and the name feast it where did that come from it's oh, a great question it feels like forever ago that we we discussed this we i think it was we came up with about 10 different potentials right at the start. I remember one of them was, oh God, one of them was Hubie, as in Hugo and Digby. And I also realised that we have the most hideously posh names, you know, in isolation, particularly when combined. But that was not a not a great one. But Feast It was one of them and it, it made sense. And the idea was that we wanted to make a platform from the start that would have multiple event booking options on it so we started in just uh booking food and that was uh well that that's sort of where we've grown from and feast it worked with that and the idea was to to move out the it into other categories so you know how easyjet has 
easy property, easy gym, etc. To sort of go from there, that's a bit of a ta- tacky example, maybe. But um, but yeah, the the aim was to sort of grow out of service and there, and it seemed like a name that made sense. People caught caught on to. I think uh, the one thing I regret about it now is probably repeating it and spelling it out every single time you give someone your email. But it does seem to stick with people. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. So it's feast hyphen it <laughs> dot com dot com <laughs> I must have been through that exact uh conversation probably three thousand times <laughs> <laughs> nice nice so I, I guess the really interesting bit i think unusually your co-founder was right there in front of you and and the same for digby with you what's so interesting is why feast it? Why that concept? Was it a personal experience? Whereas, like, this should be a thing. How, how did you guys kind of start playing around with that idea? Well, so there, there are a couple of factors that came into it. So the origin story is there are a few aspects where we, uh, well, Digby was working at Fest Ticket and they provide the tickets for a number of sort of the biggest music festivals in the world and they're a very kind of popular platform for for booking those through and there were lots of uh suppliers who were getting contact catering suppliers about with Festicket about applying for the events and it just seemed that there was no clear way for them to do that at the same time it was my mum's uh, 50th birthday as well and you know I went through the experience of trying to find the best suppliers for that who were uh, who would come out to a sort of village outside of Oxford and it was very very hard to find people who you knew would be good and who would be able to do the event and then to go through all the complications that come with organizing uh, an event um, and then it was also just an appreciation of, of the product so we work with some of the best um, best food traders in the country and now events suppliers in general but at launch we launched with a hundred of the best street food traders in london and um we had obviously been in london for the last couple of years and that had been an incredible scene there so the, the sort of the allure of working with such amazing kind of what well, such an amazing movement such amazing chefs uh, and working in the food industry was a big part of why we wanted to start this and it's still something we're incredibly passionate about so I, I think what is incredible, as you say, I think you put it so so well that you were both in your mid-20s or early to mid-20s and you kind of thought, well, you know, as you say, if this if this goes not not really anywhere in the next year, right, we, we can just move back to our sort of fledging careers and we can just move on. But I guess now we're four years down the line and things are going very well. But kind of moving back to that foundation story where, you guys have played around with an idea, even sort of played around with a few few uh, names. But when you sort of went, oh gosh, we need to you know incorporate this company and all this sort of what people would say the scary nitty gritty. Did you guys have lots of conflict on that, or is it we're just going to go straight down the middle and that's it, done and sorted? Yeah, pretty much. That <laughs> that that's sort of the simplest answer to that. To be honest, it was all there was nothing complicated about it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to add to that. It was all we, we kind of just did it in a very, all very 
yeah, there, there was nothing complicated about that that entire process, which I think is probably relatively rare among co-founders who who aren't such good friends. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's that's what's uh, kind of what I was playing at because you know being such long-term friends, those sort of conversations can cause conflict, and obviously in your case it didn't, which is fantastic. Um, but then, yeah, you you guys own this business; it's incorporated. You have a name. Where did you start? I guess where what was how did you guys did divide the roles up and uh, sort of start cracking on? Well, I mean, the way that the roles divided, if you want to hear the worst joke ever, which is again something I've probably repeated hundreds of times, but the way that it was simply done was that I would book the cooks and he would cook the books which oh god um yes terrible uh, effectively there was no to be to clarify there was no book cooking that that went on it was very much uh off by the board um and uh but but i was much more involved in the operations side of things uh, to start off with so that meant signing up a lot of the suppliers on board so uh we signed up around yeah 100 of who we saw as being kind of london's best caterers for launch and then uh Tickby was much more involved in the sort of financial and fundraising side of things so before we launched we did an angel round of funding uh and had our uh and which which came off the back of uh a, a um designer called Neverbland agreeing to build our platform. So off the concept and the wireframe, so effectively the designs for the website, we were able to raise our first round of funding. And that was sort of where things probably kicked off from. Mm, amazing. And then using an agency to build your platform, was that a friends and family style round or your own personal investment that you put that forward? Or did you go pre-build angel investments straight off the bat so they were we were lucky enough that they took equity in feasted so they took equity in the they we sort of pitched to them and they they ended up taking equity in the product or in the company to build the product which for us was a great decision at the time couldn't have gone any better uh because uh of course we were very very keen to have a great agency on board which they were but also the fact that they were now invested in us you know gives them an extra reason to do an absolutely brilliant job and they and they and they did amazing and yeah i'm sure you're still working with them today and you get a lot of uh, cheap development work uh, since they're already invested in the company well now we have in-house developers but yeah we did work with them quite a bit afterwards and yeah they were great and their their founder scott is sort of very very helpful to us at Feast It and, and always has been. Kind of that first year, first year of any business is the hardest. Um, and then there's a second year and then that's the hardest, right? But after that, during that first year, can you remember sort of the hard challenges that you faced during that first year? Yeah, I think it's fair, it's fair to say that the uh, that last year is, is probably officially the hardest year for obvious reasons. Uh, but yeah, um, first year, yeah, first year is, is obviously hard now. And I think um we did lots of it was done with manual labor so we're a tech platform where theoretically everything should be happening very very smoothly and and now does but in the early days there was lots of reaching out to potential clients directly liaising with suppliers very um very directly so i mean the analogy would be uh, 
would be, you know, Airbnb calling up people to sell them on the product and then calling up the right suppliers to sort of find um, to find the perfect options for them. There was lots of sort of behind the scenes work that was going on, stage managing. Uh, and um, and that really kind of builds up your knowledge of business. There was lots of kind of, yeah, manual work that went into it back then, which has, has obviously grown less and less and less and is now almost nothing uh, to make bookings happen. But yeah, it was just a, it, it was a slog because the tech wasn't quite there at that point. It's very hard to, um, events is an industry where reputation carries quite a lot. And it was, and um, for us, we were lucky in that we worked with some quite big names early. So Samsung, uh, I think our first booking was from Pernod Ricard, who were uh, who were a, a, a big a drinks brand, and uh, that kind of helped us get help, helped us to get legitimacy. But yeah, it certainly wasn't easy getting in new clients. So a lot of that just came from hard work, manual outreach, and getting our name out there as much as possible. So yeah, I, 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 honestly, I think. If I could sum up the first year, it would just be hard work to, to, to get things off the ground. And then one year down the line, obviously, I appreciate you, you can't divulge uh, numbers, but were you happy with the growth after that first year? Did you, did you uh, were you making money? Yeah, I mean, we were, we, were, we were doing well after the first year. We got, um, I can't remember exactly how much we did, but it was, yeah, it was, it was uh, we felt like we had a very strong first year uh, and uh yeah we won some we worked with i think the thing we were probably the most shocked by was we knew there would be a market for our products which you know is is making booking suppliers for events easy but we probably didn't expect that after the first year we would have worked with the likes of yeah sort of your samsung's nike's uh twitter virgin um so many big companies and big names that we were kind of we we assumed that we would have to forge a name for ourselves in the in the private market and then the corporate market would start to come but actually the corporate market happened very very quickly and that's probably uh probably the the, the aspect that that we were surprised by the most or pleasantly surprised by mm, yeah it's quite incredible um you you straight away did you straight away focus on the business to business model or was it a case of We'll try and kind of offer it for everyone because that first year working with the likes of Nike, Samsung, and by the sounds of it, your list kind of goes on. I mean, if you from the day you'd incorporated the company and somebody say, hey, Hugo, you're going to be working or have worked with these companies by the time 12 months comes around, you would have gone, you must be crazy, surely. Yeah, yeah, we, we would have done. And uh, I think it, I think it lent into our skill sets as founders probably in the first year. So neither of us are technical founders and we both sort of put ourselves, well, invested ourselves in the business development side of things. And that really was what helped to get us big numbers in the first year and get us big name bookings was, yeah, that manual outreach, making sure that we were in the, you know, first and foremost in the minds of, of, of everyone who we get in contact with when it came to booking their events. And, um, I think that's something we've always been quite, that's sort of been in our DNA as a company all the time is this yeah, strong kind of business development outreach and um, making sure that people know who we are. Mm, yeah, great. And then kind of a year down the line or two years down the line, you're growing in employee count. I guess yourself, you'll be transitioning into more of a managerial role. How did you find that? Um, I, I like to always dig into 
kind of the change in your own abilities, right? You, you not necessarily have managed a team at that point. How did you find that transition? Well, I think there's there are, the, the major aspect to it is, well, the most important thing I think is, is admitting to yourself where you're not necessarily strong. And as first time founders who, when it came to starting a business, were, were relatively young, when that happened, uh, we were very or painfully aware of our own shortcomings. And we've always said that the ambition has been to hire people who are more knowledgeable, more intelligent than us um, in kind of every area. And to be honest, that's the route that we've 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 gone down. So uh, we made some 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 really good hires in the early days who have sort of taken us forward in terms of operations, in terms of marketing, in terms of business development. And so we've sort of made sure that, well, and, and now in terms of sort of um, our, our product side as well. So we've made sure that any kind of knowledge gap areas have been plugged. And I, I, I can't, you know, in, t- in terms of sort of management tips, the, the one thing that I, you know, we recommended and obviously easily, easily said and nowhere near as easily done, but just make sure you're always um, employing people who are, who, who are cleverer than you, basically, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's an age-old advice, but it's good advice, right? And uh, especially for you guys, I think what's so interesting is that it's not like you both came from the events industry and then went, yeah, Hugo, Digby, said to one another and went, yeah, there's a problem here. Um, you, you, you had been in and around potentially the problem, but to make that leap into the unknown must have been exciting, but pretty pretty scary at the same point. Yeah, well, Digby had to a certain extent been in the events industry with Festicket, but it's obviously a different kettle of fish, uh, kind of tickets for festivals. But um, but we saw the opportunity there and 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 thought that there was a, a, a big market to tap into. And to be honest, our view on that hasn't changed at all. I think we we always think of, of the events industry as as very similar to the pre Airbnb pre effective booking.com travel industry. So yeah, events is absolutely huge as an industry in the UK. It's a trillion globally and 90 billion in the UK, which, you know, is, is, is twice as much as, um, as, as international travel, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely vast and, but it's massively kind of underrepresented in, you know, in, in sort of, in terms of media around the economy, etc., uh, and the way that people book events fundamentally is very, very broken. So I don't know how many, if you've ever organised a wedding or an office party or a birthday or anything like that, but the way that most people go about it is going to be either getting a recommendation off a friend or just going and googling suppliers for it. And while that's serviceable, it's not a particularly good experience and taking a wedding for example where you're probably the average wedding books about 15 suppliers from caterers to uh, a band uh, marquee supplier etc and um, normally spends about just under 30,000 pounds on average organizing it so it's the most expensive day of people's lives normally and probably the most important too but when it comes to organizing it the experience is pretty dreadful so your options are to yeah go out and find uh suppliers yourself 
And that means getting recommendations from friends, just Googling, and then having to handle all of your suppliers independently in the build up to the event. So over the phone, email, call, uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, and each supplier will have a different deposit, most likely. It's just a very complicated procedure. And the average person spends 300 hours organizing a wedding. So it's pretty labor intensive. And we just wanted to, to, to offer people kind of quality options. So another problem, and I'm sure you've experienced it, again, taking a wedding for an example, is you turn up and you can clearly tell that, say, the food has been a bit of an afterthought where it's just either gone with what's provided or go with a safe option. And we wanted to kind of push people to go for really exciting options that they know are going to be good and also make them incredibly easy to book. And that's sort of the point of least. And now, uh, as, as I said, we, we launched with just caterers on the platform and now we've expanded out to become a full event planning platform. So marquees, florists, photographers, videographers, all while trying to keep a, a, a um, uh, keep a hand on, on the quality and make sure that the suppliers we're working with are, are only the best. Mm, yeah, and it's really important to you as a business um, for to maintain quality. Um, outside of my vivid imagination of you trying every single food outlet and uh, food truck in London to ensure that they're good quality, how do, how do you go about that? Uh, there are lots of ways in which we do it, and it differs per what we would call vertical. So it's different for a photographer uh, in a way that's different from a um, from a caterer. Lots of it's qualitative, some of it's quantitative. So in terms of that uh, kind of um, that kind of quantitative side, you've got things like do they have ratings online, uh, and can we go and find those? Can we uh, look at their documentation, see, make sure everything's up to date? Food suppliers, you've got things like a hygiene rating. So fundamentally. We won't work with anyone who, who doesn't have a, have, a, have a brilliant hygiene rating and all of their documentation up to date and has sort of flawless reviews amongst all the events that they've done previously. And then you have the kind of qualitative uh, aspects to it. So do they have a good brand? Do they have good imagery? Um, when we kind of speak to them, do we get the impression that they're going to be very helpful with people when it comes to their events? Because that's a big part of it. You, you, you're kind of paying for suppliers who not only are a, a high quality, but are going to make things less stressful for you on the day. So you want to make sure they're sort of, yeah, they, they're going to be helpful in that planning process too. So that's an important part. So going back to talking about growth um, with, with your high quality suppliers on board and they're more and more uh, frequent now on the platform as you've b- begun to grow and, and now you up, have grown up over a four-year period when you guys are sitting down uh, yourself and Digby and you're you know you're having your morning coffee talking about uh, feast it and, and what you're going to build what, what did you guys set out to achieve did you write down we're going to conquer the world or did you have quite tangible um, objectives to go out no we never had tangible objectives as such and it was it was never we never wanted to be a small company and we never said that it was going to take over the world. I think we, in terms of objectives, we just wanted to, we wanted to kind of create a company at the outset that could go on and become a big, big company in terms of that catering side of things and then move into the event side of things. And we started doing that. And But I think the, the aspect that we didn't appreciate was the the extent of the size of the events industry that we're moving into. So the more we do this, like 
there's no events company in the world that has a has more than a two percent market share it's very very fragmented so uh, there's there's every opportunity for a company an online company online platform to come along and 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 take up a bigger proportion from that the events industry and we've always said that our aim now uh, is to become the biggest events company in the world and 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 that still very much remains our aim as things stand <laughs> awesome so let's talk about barriers um and i guess how how you're overcoming them and and sort of the challenges that go with that um covid-19 I, I guess i had to mention the elephant in the room we're having this conversation in uh, the early stages of 2021 we've we've known about the virus now for the best part of a year um the events industry the hospitality industry has been hit harder than any really um and you're right in the middle of it how on earth have you gone about dealing with it uh well so the thing to acknowledge up front is that you know effectively our our sales tapered off very very quickly so we went from being a company doing kind of almost a million pound months to doing i think it was something like nine thousand in uh in april so things <laughs> things got hit pretty hard pretty fast and events is was was the first industry to to get hit by covid effectively because while hospitality has been able to stay open in some way shape or form events have been banned right from the start and you know while weddings came back it was in a very limited capacity and it doesn't really count so um there was that aspect of it and we realized that things were going to have to going to have to well we're going to have to do stuff pretty fast and luckily for us we have quite a supportive set of investors so we've been able to raise a round of funding to, to see us through uh, and also we have in the meantime switched our offering so we now offer virtual events too so those have proven very very popular so we now yeah offer things like uh virtual cooking classes virtual cocktail classes um, escape rooms craft classes those kind of things and those are great for for birthdays and lockdown events that kind of thing and also for for company team building as well so uh lots of corporates have absolutely no idea what to do with their event planning budgets at the moment and um i think there was a bit of a after the first wave of lockdown people were getting a bit bored of zoom events a bit tired of quizzes etc and but i think since then there's been a recognition that if you make them interactive they can be really really fun so yeah we've 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 kind of put a lot into that and got some brilliant options on there and just today we launched with we've brought on uh tom kerridge and jose pizarro and a load of other uh well-known chefs to provide kind of virtual cook-along classes as well so there are loads of options on there really exciting ones and that's been a big part of this year for us and be interesting to see how um how virtual events maintain into next year there's um there's a lot of potential for them i think obviously it's very hard to predict what the future is going to be in terms of live events coming back and and the longer they don't the more virtual events will go on for and there will probably uh, still be an appetite for them even in the sort of world uh, kind of post post covid world post lockdown world we think mm, yeah it's a fascinating space um and i think it's kudos on on sort of yourself and the rest of the team to pivot so sharply 
um, especially when you're, you were so dependent on kind of pre-COVID uh, life. Um, do you think that that sort of new revenue stream could be maybe even more beneficial or more profitable for the business moving forward? Uh, I It's a hard one. I think it has the, of course, it has the potential to be, but... I think the, the the average virtual event is is particularly attractive because they are somewhat uh, cheaper than um, than big live events where people are booking marquees and photographers and catering, and that's great. It just means that we need to uh, need to be doing more of them, but uh, or, or or selling more products to them. So I think for me, it will be a it will brilliantly supplement our our events offering going forwards. Mm, yeah, great to hear. And then looking back at, I think as you sort of um, said yourself, the, the hardest year thus far for Feast It yourself uh, and the business, um, did you have to make any kind of really tough decisions last year with, with your staff? Yeah, there were some pretty tough decisions along the way. Obviously, um, as a, there, there were some there were some people who we did uh, did let go of and and. We, we really didn't want that to be the case at any point, And we really did try and do everything we could to make sure that didn't happen. But the kind of economic reality was that it was just an impossibility not to. Um, but, uh, but I think we've, we've kept the, the vast majority of the team on and, um, and yeah, we're, we're kind of working towards the recovery coming soon. And that's not looking like it's too far away now, obviously with yeah, everything's changing on a day-to-day basis, of course, but each day, is a day closer to, um, to to herd immunity vaccinations, so we're not too far off now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And and from a feast day point of view, I'm sure that that boom of rearranged weddings, rearranged bar mitzvahs, everything is going to be absolutely chaos. Well, we can hope, I guess. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. Uh, there's going to be a lot of events that go forward. There's going to be pent up demand because weddings, milestone birthdays, very important corporate events, they don't get cancelled, they get postponed. Um, and that means that there's yeah, going to be a big rush as soon as, as they're able to go forward. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be fun, to say the least. Great. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I guess it's a great question to ask next is, four years on, are you still enjoying yourself? Yeah, oh, very much so. I think the... Um, the parts of it that are that are exciting are always growth, and there's lots that we uh, that we want to do in the UK and, and outside. We, we we really wanted to expand internationally this year, uh, well, as of as of last year. And obviously, that's probably not going to be a possibility at the moment, uh, but that very much remains the aim, and that's still really exciting for us. We uh, we've just joined the London Mayor's um, International Business Program, which is which helps companies do that. So hopefully that can uh, that can give us a bit of a leg up there. And um, also just to be honest, there's the excitement right now of knowing that events, essentially our market t- doesn't exist right now really and is going to be coming back soon. And that's a very, very exciting prospect for us, of course. Does it feel kind of like you're starting again in a way because of the way the industry has just gone completely flat? In a way, yes. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the industry. I think you won't realise the extent of the changes or the damages to it until it starts emerging again, because uh, lots of companies are 
in in a bit of hibernation right now. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens. In short, yes. In um, uh, but I, I feel that we're we're emerging stronger than before because we've taken this time to bring on new suppliers, launch new verticals, improve our products. So I feel that we're emerging in a much stronger position than we were before, which is really exciting, to be honest. Um, and uh, I feel that lots of people have been sort of weakened at, at this time, but, but Feast It has definitely strengthened, which is mm. very exciting. Yeah, it's great to hear. And I guess looking back at the journey so far, what would you consider your biggest break has been? Uh, it's a tough one. I would say something that I touched on earlier is, is maybe the um, the best thing that happened to us, which was our the agency originally agreeing to to build Feastit for for equity it was a was a big big moment for us and one that we look back on as being a very very pivotal moment. Also, the um, decisions of a number of kind of key big companies to work with us early on. So there were a couple of events that we did. I think I briefly mentioned one earlier. There was a very big event we did for Samsung at the start and Virgin as as well. These were sort of quite large scale events and we kind of said yes to them without knowing how we were going to work them all out and just sort of worked worked it out as we as we went. But um but them agreeing to work with us was a very, very big moment. And um so I would say those those kind of early days were a few a few things that happened then were incredibly pivotal for us and really really kind of well we kind of s- still have them to thank for a lot of where we are today yeah the foundations of, of the business were really made in that first year of hustle and bustle yeah exactly moving forward into the future hopefully a bright shiny future that we're all looking forward to especially for feast it what do you think the biggest barrier is going to be for you guys to have success moving forward uh, it's a really good question, and to be honest, the answer right now is the government. Uh, I don't really know how better to answer that. It's, it's, it's as soon as they allow events to go forward, uh, then we we can kind of kick off with things. And um, and yeah, it's just that kind of roadmap back to events uh, being being allowed to go forward. And obviously, that's not us calling for them to rush that process or anything. Like that has to be dealt with correctly, but. Yeah, just a sort of roadmap back to events is, 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 is sort of our biggest barrier right now by miles. Do you think business growth is a mindset or something that can be learned along the way? Uh, I think it's something that can be learned along the way, I would say. There's nothing that can't be learned. I think some people are naturally better uh, than others. I would also say that lots of people tell you there are miracle ways of going about certain things when really the answer is is just hard work and that the majority of people who are shouting about it on on LinkedIn aren't people who have actually been there and done it themselves and and I think that the majority of people who have been there and done it aren't the people who are shouting about it on LinkedIn so um so yeah I'd, I'd, I'd say that yeah I think I think to be honest, hard work is a much bigger part of it than, than people often just like to admit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. However, people think that it can just happen overnight. We all know that that's complete uh, rubbish. And uh, as you say, hard work and uh, graft is, is the only real way to build a successful business. Unless you're Zoom. <laughs> Unless you're Zoom. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're Zoom. Adaptation, agility and flexibility. All energy shifts that most businesses aspire to have 
and all startups require. For Feastit, being in the hospitality industry meant Hugo Digby and team had to react fast and in the right manner, or it could have been a lot worse for business over the course of 2020. In reality, the forced closure of offline events transitioned the business into a new revenue stream with online virtual events taking the world by storm. In 2021, the hopeful resurgence of in-person events will see Feastit continue to grow with international expansion on the horizon. If you want to follow Hugo's journey, you can find him on LinkedIn or via Feastit, which is feasts-it.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's show of Growth in Mind. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can get in touch with us about product and marketing services at airbyte.uk. This week's episode was produced by Alexi Buckingham with music by Ten Hands High. I am James Farnfield and you've been listening to Growth in Mind.